So what do you think of when you think of Christmas? We're getting into the Christmas season now, and depending on where you grew up or how you were brought up or which part of the world you come from, Christmas might have certain associations in your mind. For some of you, you think of Christmas and you think of snow and a warm fireplace with the family. Others of you might recall fond times with your family growing up with a tree and, you know, decorating the tree. And then on Christmas Day, opening gifts, presents with much joy. If you're like me, when I think of Christmas, I'm usually reminded of the food and all my grandma's great cooking. Um, if you're really spiritual, you might be like one of the uh, persons I talked to last night, and I said, my opening for my sermon tomorrow is, what do you think of when you think of Christmas? And I said, you know, the tree, the food, and she said, Jesus! Well, this morning, I'm going to say something that might surprise you. Uh, I'm going to bring up one image that you might not associate with Christmas, but you really should. And the image is that of a snake. Exactly. And if you're surprised like that, then what we're going to do this morning is that we'll see that a key character in the story of Christmas is a snake. And to do that, we're going to go back to the very first book in the Bible where the story of Christmas really begins. It's the book of Genesis. And I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, right there is the beginning of Christmas, the first Christmas promise. Those are God's words. So Christmas doesn't begin with an announcement of an angel to Mary or the angels proclaiming great joy to the shepherds. No, Christmas begins with God's words spoken to a snake right here. You know, some of you might have grown up in uh, particular Christian traditions where you're hearing what I'm saying and you're saying, Christmas in the Bible, there is no Christmas in the Bible. And if that's you, then on the one hand, I would say, yeah, you're right. That, that is correct. I agree. Uh, the New Testament doesn't tell us the date of Jesus' birth. It doesn't tell us he was born on December 25. Uh, the New Covenant, the New Testament, does not command Christians to celebrate any particular religious holiday. We're not commanded to set apart one day and say that this is the birth of Christ and obligated to celebrate it as such. The only obligation uh, and mandate that the New Testament places on us by way of religious day and observance is the Lord's Day a weekly commemoration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is this meeting here. So in that sense, as a Christian religious holiday, you're right, Christian is, Christmas is not in the Bible. But in another sense, if we're speaking of the story of Christmas, the story of God the Son, who came into this world, took on human flesh with a mission to save sinners and redeem us from Satan's power. If we're speaking of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and His birth for our salvation, 
that story is everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what we're going to be looking at the next few weeks in this short series, this Christmas season, as we look at Christmas promises from Genesis to Revelation. And today, we're beginning at the very beginning with the first promise of Christmas, and it's the verse that we just read. And you're wondering, how is that a Christmas promise? Well, in order to answer that question, to see how Christmas is promised in this verse of Scripture, in this key verse, we're going to ask and answer three questions. Question number one, what is the context of this promise? What is the context of this promise? And as we answer that question, we'll look at the context of the promise in three scenes. The story unfolds and brings us to this verse in three scenes. Scene one is creation. Creation. We begin, the Bible story begins with creation and takes us to a beautiful garden. So you know the first verse of the Bible, a couple of chapters back, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from all eternity past, there was nothing and there was God, the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing, the source of our life. And as far as creation went, there was nothing. And you know, a few days back, I was reading the creation story with uh, my daughters, and uh, you know, they obviously puzzle over this, and one of them asked, so Daddy, before creation, before God created everything, there was God, and there was nothing? And I was like, yeah, that's right. And then my youngest one asked, was the nothing white? Or was it black? I said, I don't know. I said, how could it be just God and nothing? I was like, I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. And then God spoke. And where there was nothing, the universe came into existence. Where there was nothing, God spoke. And all of a sudden, there were stars and galaxies. And there were deserts and beaches and oceans. And there were lobsters and palm trees. And he created everything by his word. And and we read that account in Genesis chapter 1 as God brings all of creation into existence by his word. And then we come to chapter 1 and verse 26. And then we see him do something really special in the narrative. Something really special that God is doing. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has just created a glorious, beautiful universe. And now he creates something really special. He creates humankind. Male and female, in his own image, after his likeness. In other words, created to be God's representatives in this world that he has made. And he gives human beings authority. He says, let them have dominion over all these things. They rule over God's universe as kings and queens. 
representing his royal rule. And not just that, God blesses human beings. God blessed them. They created special and unique, different from everything else, different from the animals. God gives them authority. God blesses them and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over it all. How glorious. A beautiful garden paradise in a beautiful world, unstained, unspoiled, teeming with life. And God gives Adam and Eve, the first human beings, to rule over this world on his behalf. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Exceedingly, abundantly good. We come to Genesis chapter 2 and now we get a closer view. It, it's like those movies where you see kind of a, a grand picture, you know, a sweep of everything and then all of a sudden the camera focuses in and takes you to have a closer view up close of what God has done. In Genesis 2, we see God take the man, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, some people look at this and say, well, Adam was created to be a gardener, to take care of the environment, to be some kind of a farmer. And I think that would be missing really what the text is intending to connote here. Uh, Old Testament scholars throughout the world have recognized and as we read our Bibles, as we read how these terms are used throughout the Old Testament, we recognize that actually these words, to work it and keep it, connote a priestly task. Those two terms are used to describe the work of priests later in the Old Testament who serve in God's tabernacle and later God's temple. Human beings are created with a royal role to rule over creation, but also with a priestly role to worship God, to be worshipers of God and mediate the worship of God throughout God's creation. The garden is like a temple. It's the place where God himself dwells. We'll see later that they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. God has fellowship with his people. He walks among his people. He dwells in this garden named Eden and Adam and Eve have fellowship with him. It's glorious. Created to worship. And then God gives a command. Chapter 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the attendant command given by God, tells us who's in charge. Yes, Adam and Eve were to rule, but they were to rule under the lordship of their creator. This tells us who defines right and wrong. Who defines what is good and evil. It's God. Adam and Eve were not to take from this tree and seek to define good and evil for themselves. They were to live in trust in God's promises and in dependence upon God to show them right and wrong in obedience to God's commands. The Lord draws a line. He creates a boundary. He gives a command. 
And friends, that's how God always works in His relations with us. He gives commands. He draws boundaries. And you know, some people think true freedom is found in doing whatever you want. But true freedom, real joy, is found in trusting God and in obeying His commands. He draws lines for our good, for our flourishing. He gives us boundaries within which to live. Soon after that, you see the first wedding, the first marriage in Scripture. Verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then God puts Adam to sleep. And out of Adam's side, he creates Eve. And then you see a man leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the Lord says. They become one flesh. Glorious, beautiful marriage. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No fear, no shame, transparency, perfection. But everything quickly changes as we move from scene one, creation, to scene two, temptation. We're looking at the context of the promise in Genesis 3.15 in three scenes. Scene one was creation, scene two is temptation, and we pick it up in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, which begins with these words. And, and in the original Hebrew, the first three words there are kind of highlighted. They really pop out. It's like putting them in bold and italics and underline and a bigger size font to say, now the serpent, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Tragedy. You know, we see this character appear all of a sudden in Genesis 3. Now the serpent comes and you have this talking snake. Where did this serpent come from? I don't know. Why is the snake talking? We don't know. He just shows up on the scene. We do know as we read our Bibles that it was no ordinary snake, that eventually we learned this snake was animated by, controlled by the devil or Satan, that great enemy of humankind, the one who is opposed to God and all his purposes. And here we see a kind of outworking of how sin and temptation normally works. It begins with him questioning God's words, with this familiar question, did God actually say? Did God really say? You know, friends, it's no different the way temptation and sin works today. 
all of our temptation and our battle against sin is this. It's a fight to really believe what God has actually said. And we are often faced with this same enemy who comes to us, causing us to question what God has revealed clearly in His Word, challenging us to listen to other voices. We feel those thoughts come up in our hearts and our minds. Oh, has God really said that? Is the Bible really clear on this? Maybe it'll be okay. Did God really say? Not only does he question what God has said, he presents God's command as more stifling and restrictive than it actually is. Did you notice that? He says, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God has said, you may eat of any tree in the garden, except this one. And Satan comes saying, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree? In the garden, he makes God's good commands, God's good boundaries feel stifling, restrictive, overbearing. Temptation and sin works the same way today. We begin to think of God's word as restrictive. We begin to imagine that God's commands are somehow stifling. We begin to add to God's word and view God as tyrannical. In his lordship. And that's what Satan does. He then begins to impugn bad motives to God. He moves from indirect questioning to outright contradiction. See, the woman is already confused, right? She says, she adds to God's word. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. Lest you die. And then the serpent makes his bold move. You will not surely die. And again, we're familiar with that, aren't we? This is how sin works. To present something that seems exciting and hide the consequences. To deceive you into thinking that you will not pay for this sin. You will not surely die. It's all right. You can watch that thing that you're not supposed to watch. You will not surely die. You can enter into this relationship that's actually going to destroy you, but it'll bring you so much pleasure. Oh, you will not surely die. You can tell that lie. It's okay. You're after all doing it with good intentions. You will not surely die. Sin hides the consequences. It puts out the bait and hides the hook. And then he impugns bad motives to God. He says, well, God doesn't want you to eat of this because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then we see the tragedy as the man and woman seek to be like God apart from God, seek to rule for themselves apart from God's rule. In these devastating words of scripture, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And gave to a husband who was with her. And he ate. Do you see there? God has spoken clearly. God's word has said, you shall not eat. You will surely die. The woman sees that the tree is good. And she decides to eat. And again, friends, this is how sin works. Fighting sin is a battle to live by faith and in obedience to what God has said rather than by sight. 
by what you see. As Christians, we seek to live in obedience to God's word. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ rather than what we see with our eyes. And you also see here this very tragic failure of Adam, verse 8. Sorry, verse 6. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God gave the command to the man. In Genesis 3, when the Lord God comes out seeking the man, uh, he, he calls out to Adam. He questions Adam. He holds Adam responsible. Men are appointed and called by God to lead their households, their families in the ways of God. And here we see Adam's failure, standing there passively, chilling out. He should have evicted the serpent. You're not supposed to be here talking snake. Get out of this garden and led his wife and he failed. And I want to encourage you and appeal to you men in the congregation this morning. Brothers, lead your families. Lead your households in the ways and word of God. Too often, you know, I hear this again and again from women, from sisters. Sometimes they'll come, oh, would you please talk to my husband. You know, it's hard. Brothers, we are to lead our homes to glorify God and live in obedience to His word. So they sin. They fail. Tragedy ensues. Move from scene one, creation. Scene two, temptation. To scene three, condemnation. Condemnation. Verse seven. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve have broken God's command. They have rebelled against their Creator. They have violated His law, and they are now guilty before God Almighty. And in their guilt, they begin to feel shame. Guilt leads to shame. There's this sense of alienation from God and from one another. There's a shamefulness. They, they realize their nakedness and they cover themselves. And their guilt and shame then leads to fear. These are the realities in which we live. The fact that we are guilty. The fact that we are ashamed. And the fact that we have much to fear. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Here's God speaking, taking the initiative, seeking out these fallen sinners. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Guilt leads to shame, leads to fear. The Lord said, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so there you have the original blame game. 
this blame game that plays out over and over again in our lives, at our workplaces, with our kids, in our families, in our marriages. Oh, you know, I, I try to do everything right, but you know, this person made me do it. Oh, if, if God was just more gracious to me and the circumstances were better, I wouldn't have fallen into, those, into that sin. You know, one preacher said, often the devil is held responsible for things for which humans should take responsibility. The blame game. And then you have this courtroom scene in which God, the almighty creator and judge, pronounces his sentence. Here it comes, verse 14 and following. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned everywhere to guard the way to the tree of life. Condemnation, banishment from the presence of God, separated from the source of life, faced with the judgment of the curse. You know, the, a great test for any worldview is to examine a worldview for its ability to answer life's most basic questions. What do I mean by a worldview? I mean... It's our, our basic set of beliefs, our deepest beliefs by which we understand the world around us. You know, whatever religion you're from, or even if you're atheistic, all of that is a worldview. You have a set of beliefs by which you understand reality. And the test for any worldview is, how does it answer life's most basic questions? Questions like this. Why is our world so messed up? Why is life hard? Why is work so hard? You know, a couple of years ago, I was sitting with a brother, a member of this church, wanted to meet for coffee, and we were talking, and he said, you know, I really want to change my profession. He was a teacher. And I said, well, why do you want to change your profession? He said, because there is no other job that is as daily demanding and as draining as my job. And I smiled, and I said, oh, man. <laughs> I wish I could have you talk to a bunch of people who will all say the same thing. This summer, uh, we were in Kentucky in June, and we came up with this brilliant idea, I, I don't know how, but to take the kids 
and to go with this other family who were friends of ours to a farm to go strawberry picking, right? So you go out to the farm, you pay a small fee, and then they let you into the fields and you can pick all of these different berries. Sounds great. Except in June, Kentucky is pretty hot and humid. And we went out to the farm and I'm like, oh, we're going to get buckets full of strawberries. And then I started bending down to pick off those strawberries. And after picking about four of them, I was like, I don't want any more strawberries. It's hard. Thank God, I'll just, I'll just buy them from the grocery store. Strawberries bring great delight. They're sweet. But why is it hard to pick them? That's a worldview question. Why is childbirth so painful? As one teacher put it, he said, in the moments of life's greatest blessing, marriage and children, the woman will feel some of life's greatest pain. Why do we live in a world with miscarriages and malaria and cancer and car accidents? Why is there so much destruction and pain and sickness and sorrow? Why do we keep hearing of hurricanes and floods and earthquakes and typhoons? What's wrong with our world? You know, we, we don't come into this world just neutral and oh, that's just the way it is and everything's part of life. That's just a part of life. No, it's not. There's something wrong here. Why do we die? You know, this weekend is two years since I got a call from India that my dad had been having some health issues. He had had a minor heart attack and had recovered, come home, and then all of a sudden these unforeseen health issues started showing up. Soon after that, we found out he had cancer. And 13 days later, I watched him die. And it was hard. It was hard. Why is death so hard and so painful when we lose the ones we love? And then we're reminded of our own impending death that one day we too will join them. And the prospect of death is fearful and frightening. What's wrong with our world? And to all of those questions which no other worldview can answer. The Bible, the Christian worldview, Genesis chapter 3 speaks with crystal clarity, loudly saying, we live under the curse and judgment of Almighty God because of our rebellion against Him. This is the result of our sin. And friends, if God so willed, he would be perfectly just and righteous to leave us in our fallen condition, doomed to darkness, despair, death, and everlasting condemnation and judgment under His wrath, together with the serpent that we chose to follow. If God so willed, the Bible would be three chapters long, and that would be it. But He didn't. Let the story end there. No, he made a promise. A Christmas promise. And we see the content of this promise in Genesis 3.15. We've looked at the context of the promise in three scenes. Creation, temptation, condemnation. 
Now we must ask, what is the content of the promise? And we look there at chapter 3, verse 15. Let me read this again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, in verse 14, right before that, the Lord curses the serpent and says, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And sometimes people come up with this idea that somehow, you know, the Bible is giving us here a folk tale or some kind of a mythological fable that, you know, this is why snakes crawl on the ground, right? Like those you know, Babylonian folk tales that people tell, that's why frogs croak at night. That's why bunnies hop. Here's why snakes crawl on the ground. Now, did the snake have arms and legs and walk around before that and then he was reduced to crawling? I don't know. All right? But what I do know is this, that in the image of the snake crawling on its ground, slithering around, confined to the dust, looking like it's eating the dust, is God's word of judgment on everything that that snake represents, on Satan himself, on the devil himself. That God is Lord here and he rules and he has confined Satan to judgment and will ultimately destroy him. And that's what we see in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. By the way, that verse is not again explaining why women don't like snakes. All right? you know, sometimes people say, and that's why you know, when you're in the house and if there's a snake in the house, the woman's going to run up and jump up on a chair and scream, help! That, that's not that, what that verse is talking about. All right? There are lots of women who are not afraid of snakes and are very brave with snakes, far more brave than I. Now, what this is talking about is a conflict, an enmity that God has appointed between the serpent, Satan, and humankind. And then we see that this conflict extends to the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. So really as we continue reading the Bible, you see that conflict play out throughout the story of the scriptures. We in fact see all of humanity divided into two. Those who belong to the serpent and follow his will, and those who belong to God, God's own people. You see it in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4. We see Cain, who is of the evil one, the seed of the serpent, kill his brother Abel, the righteous one, who belongs to the Lord. We see this with the people of Israel, God's own people, who are under bondage to Egypt and Pharaoh, who represents the serpent. That continues on and on as you read the Bible of this conflict between God and his people and the enemies of God. But what this also promises is that the conflict will come to a climax. The serpent and all those who belong to him will finally be defeated. He shall bruise your head. From the offspring of a woman will come a singular offspring, a champion, a hero, who will crush this serpent's head. And the curse will finally be undone. And as we read the Old Testament, as we read our Bibles, the whole story of, Bible, of the Bible, the whole story of human history is one of waiting for this offspring, waiting for this promised one, waiting for this savior and deliverer, the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. You read and, and you see Abraham and God make promises to him 
And, and you, you begin to think, yes, this offspring will come from the line of Abraham. You're waiting for him to come. You see the people of Israel, but all of them fail. They fail and they fall just like Father Adam. Then you come to this king who emerges named David. And you see kind of this uh, conflict play out in David's life, right? David, the anointed one of God, strikes the head of Goliath, the enemy of God. And here we think, there it is. This is the offspring of the woman. This is the one who's going to bring deliverance. This is the one who fulfills God's promises. And then David fails. And then you look at David's son, and David's son fails. And all the kings of Israel, one after the other, they fail. And we're waiting. Who is going to rescue us? We've seen the context of the promise. We know the content of the promise. And by now you're asking, well, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Well, for that, dear friends, we're going to answer our final question. What is the consummation, the fulfillment of this promise? What is the consummation of this promise? You see, as we keep reading our Old Testament, as we read the Bible, we realize we need someone who will deliver us. We need someone from the human race who will represent us and who will fulfill Genesis 3.15. We're waiting for this offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. He has to be like us, born of woman, human being in order to represent us. But none of us will do. We're all fallen and sinful, just like Adam. And then you begin to realize, well, only God can save us. Only the Lord can save us. He must intervene. He must write himself into the story. He must take the initiative. He must act. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And for years and years, God's people waited. All of humanity waited, wondering how this promise would be fulfilled. Wondering how the Lord will do it until in God's perfect timing, the promise was fulfilled. As God the Son eternal, fully God, took on human flesh so that he was fully God and fully man, born of a woman as the offspring of the woman for our salvation. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Son of God became a man, as C.S. Lewis said, to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of God came to the rescue. And Satan knew that his time was up. He tried to subvert Jesus. He tried to devour him. If you read uh, you know, the famous Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, Herod, commands that all the young boys in Israel are put to death, seeking to destroy Jesus. He fails. Uh, he tried to tempt Jesus, tried to deceive him. When Jesus was fasting and in the wilderness, Satan comes to him, tempting him again and again to doubt God's word, just as he tempted Adam. But unlike Adam, <coughs> Jesus overcame. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and defeats Satan in that battle. Throughout his life, Satan seeks to attack and oppose Jesus. The religious leaders, all of them constantly out to destroy him. Jesus even tells them, you are of your father, the devil. They tried 
try and try and fail. Jesus never sins. He never falters. He never wavers in his mission. Until finally, at the cross, where he willingly gave himself up, gave himself over in fulfillment of the promises of God, and the serpent bruised his heel, took a bite out of the Son of God, as he was nailed to the cross, shrouded in darkness, taking upon himself the penalty of our sin, facing the judgment and wrath of God that we deserve, and Satan thought he had won. But you see, God was working behind the scenes. The Lord is the author of this story. And what Satan didn't realize was that even as he was bruising the heel of the Son of God, the Lord was about to crush his head. Because this was fulfilling God's perfect plan. You see, even in Genesis 3, there's a hint of how God will accomplish his victory. Verse 21 of Genesis 3 tells us this. You know, Adam and Eve made those loincloths of fig leaves, worthless things. But here's what the Lord did. He took the initiative. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord provided a substitutionary sacrifice and covered their shame, their guilt, their sin, foreshadowing how one day the Lord himself would provide a perfect sacrifice to take away our sin and in doing so, to crush the serpent's head. And three days later, three days later, it was revealed because Jesus rose. He burst forth from the grave with glorious resurrection life and once for all defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death. Dear friends, when we think of Christmas, the baby in a manger is a serpent slaying hero. He's a snake crushing, conquering warrior who rescues us from Satan, sin and death. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. So what is this first announcement of Christmas, this first gospel message in the Bible, mean for you and me? Well, first, it provides forgiveness from the penalty of sin. You see? The, the, the greatest hold that the devil has against us is the fact that we stand guilty and condemned. That we are deserving of the sentence of judgment. But here God has acted in and through his own son. Our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty that we deserve. And therefore has dealt Satan a final blow. You might be here this morning and you don't know the forgiveness of sins and the hope that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I want to call you, invite you, encourage you to turn from your sin and to trust in this savior, deliverer, this hero, this champion who promises you forgiveness of all your sins and eternal life. You can't do it yourself. Your enemy is too great for you. You need this savior to represent you 
And you can have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, fellowship with Him today by trusting in Jesus. So hear Him call to you with salvation. Not only does this promise of Christmas, this first gospel provide forgiveness from the penalty of sin, it also procures for us freedom from the power of sin. Friends, some of you are here and you're wondering, will, will I ever be free? Maybe you live in fear of the devil or the fear of death. Maybe you, you're living and you feel like you're in bondage to this particular sin and you're wondering, am I never going to have victory over this? Friends, Jesus has defeated Satan. We have no need for the fear of him, no need for the fear of death. One little word shall fell him as we sang. And you have freedom over sin's power in your life. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we fall. But for those who are in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you can overcome that sin, whatever it is that is holding you, whatever it is that is crippling you, you can overcome that sin by the power of Christ today through faith in him and the work that he has done through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have freedom from the power of sin. And third, this promises us a future without the presence of sin. You see, we've been singing this line and we sing it every year over and over. He comes to make his blessing flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. And friends, that's pointing forward to a glorious day when God's kingdom will come, when the victory that Jesus has won will be fully realized, when the curse that came upon this world in Genesis 3 will be fully undone and you and I will be restored to a glorious new world, far more glorious even than Eden. And that promise is for all those who trust in Christ. That one day, every tear, every sorrow, every sickness, every war, every injustice, all of our sighing, all of our groaning, all of our pain will come to an end. And the sting of death will be no more. And we will have endless, unceasing joy. And our joy in the Christmas season is just a foretaste of that unending joy. So here's the greatest gift that you can give someone this Christmas. It's our privilege, it's our blessing, and our gift to give is to proclaim, to proclaim this good news, to share this resounding victory and to invite others into the everlasting joy that we will forever enjoy in God's kingdom. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious Son, our hero and our deliverer. May we live by faith in him and proclaim his victory, his rule and reign, and the forgiveness of sins in him to all that need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.